So we've established that Ron DeFeo Sr. was an abusive, overbearing father. We've also established that Ron Jr. is a meth head. Uh, he also took a lot of LSD as well, and that him and his do- daughter, him and his sister had planned these murders, and that's the story that he initially came up with. So now we're going to get into the rest of what they found and what they thought happened at the DeFeo residence, whether Ron acted alone or he acted in conjunction with his sister and a man named Richard, Richard Romando. Um, if you're reading any of the story, uh, any any of the websites, they don't mention Richard Romando, but Richard and Ron were both there. So in the telling of the story, it was Don and Ron that were both downstairs getting high with a friend. And that's where the story kind of loses its grasp. And the friend was supposed to be doing lookout and ran away. And Ron went after him to bring him back, calm him down, things like that. So it didn't get out of hand. Well, so, you know, it it wasn't supposed to get out of hand. Anyways, that's where we're going to pick up with the story. And it's pretty much the aftermath of what has happened after the killing. So after a lengthy trial that concluded right before Thanksgiving... Butch DeFeo was found guilty of killing his mother, father, two brothers, and two sisters. On December 4th, 1975, Justice Thomas Stark said that the crimes were the most heinous and abhorrent and sentenced Butch to 25 years to life. No other suspect was ever prosecuted for the crime. Butch DeFeo acted alone in the grisly crime unofficially. The evidence pointed to a conspiracy. Herman Race, who was a former New York City supervising police detective, was hired by Michael Briganti Sr. to investigate the murders. Uh, Michael Briganti Sr., if you remember, is Luis's father. Briganti had testified at the trial that he did not feel that his grandson acted alone in the commission of the crime. Since Briganti did not feel that his grandson had done all that he was accused of, he wanted Race, a licensed investigator and friend, to prove or disprove the case against Butch. Race eventually uncovered evidence that showed there were multiple gunmen and at least two guns used during the commission of the crime. During a private court hearing and at trial, Race's findings were corroborated by the prosecutor and the medical examiner, who was astonished that one man sat accused of being the sole gunman. During a November 30th, 2000 meeting with Rick Osuna, who is the author of The Night the DeFeos Died, Butch confessed that along with his sister Dawn, he and one of his friends actually committed the murder out of desperation. This fact was confirmed by a letter which was written by Butch in his own handwriting. Butch wrote, it was cold-blooded murder, period. No ghosts, no demons, just three people in which I was one. The DeFeo household had been in a frenzied state during the evening of November 12, 1974. Butch's father, according to Butch, routinely abused his family. After that evening's tirade had settled down, Butch, his 18-year-old sister Dawn, and two of Butch's friends proceeded to get high in the basement. Incensed that her father was preventing her from joining her boyfriend in Florida and worn out from the years of physical abuse, Dawn approached her older brother about killing their parents. Butch initially refused, but after a culmination of drugs, alcohol, and desperation, over the next few hours, Butch finally gave in to Dawn's ghoulish request. Employing his two friends, Butch and Don left the safety of the family's basement and headed for their parents' bedroom on the second floor. It was around 1 a.m. on November 13, 1974, while one friend waited as a lookout. The other, with his Colt Python, followed Butch, who had armed himself with a 35 Marlin rifle. A votive candle burning on the father's dresser, the second-floor bathroom light, and a military-style flashlight that was later recovered by the police on the brown recliner in the hallway outside of the master bedroom was their only source of light. 
The parents were attacked while they lay in bed. DeFeo, however, was able to struggle to his feet to attempt a counterattack on his assassins. A second bullet struck him dead before he was able to reach his target. Luis DeFeo lay in bed moaning for help as she slowly bled to death. A second bullet would silence the woman for good. Although the original plan called for the younger children to be taken to the grandparents' house in Brooklyn, Don, according to Butch, killed them to eliminate the children as witnesses and potential threats. Butch claimed he was not in the house at the time of the children's murders. He was running after one of his friends who had fled the scene. He wanted to uh, bring him back to assist with the cleanup. Even while feigning insanity at the trial, Butch DeFeo never admitted shooting the children. One can only imagine the horror on Mark and John's face when the big sister entered the room with a rifle. Don callously ordered the boys face down. A clue that the DeFeos were awake at the time of the murders rested in the final position of Mark DeFeo's body. Because Mark had suffered a debilitating injury from football, he was forced to sleep on his back. Yet, he was shot face down in bed. The prosecutor confirmed this fact at the DeFeo trial. The next room Don entered was Allison's. She was standing in the doorway when Don raised the rifle, taking aim as Allison slightly raised her head before looking into the muzzle flash. Death was instantaneous as the bullet impacted Allison's left cheek and exited her right ear. Allison's wounds were meant to disfigure the beautiful girl. Butch, upon his return was enraged at the senseless murder and confronted Don in her third-floor bedroom. After briefly wrestling for the gun, Butch got the upper hand and slammed Don against the bed, knocking her out. As she lay unconscious on her bed, Butch placed the back of the rifle to Don's head and fired. The murder spree finally ended, but the cleanup had just begun. Butch DeFeo has continually changed his story and tries to place the blame for the entire crime on his sister, even though the evidence clearly supports Butch's involvement. Nevertheless, evidence also supports the claims that more than one gun and killer were involved in the murders. Uh, Butch has conveniently forgotten writing an admission to which he admitted being part of the conspiracy. Although several attempts were made by Rick Osuna to contact one of the accomplices named by Butch DeFeo, rumor had it he had entered a witness protection program for something unrelated to Amityville. The other accomplice named by Butch DeFeo died in 2001. The man refused author Asuna's request for an interview or a chance to clear up any speculation over his involvement. As for Dawn, the post-mortem examination discovered that she had unburned powder burns on her nightgown, which lent further credence to Butch's claims of his sister's involvement. Substantial evidence exists to support the story Butch DeFeo shared with Rick Osuna and Geraldine DeFeo. Going back to January of 1975, Butch's then-lawyer Jacob Siegfried motioned the court to be permitted the right to examine, inspect, copy, photograph, or make and take photostatic copies of the original notes of the arresting officers together with police reports containing statements of the witnesses. Siegfried insisted these items were crucial in his affidavit, saying the defendant was deprived of his right to a preliminary hearing in the district court by the district attorney's actions in presenting the case directly to the grand jury. Regardless, the court did not believe these items necessary for Butch's defense, and on March 11, 1975, presiding judge John Jones denied the request. With little choice remaining, Siegfried later filed a notice of defense of mental disease or defect for his client. Since the defense had been denied an equal opportunity to have the same reports, records, and photos that the prosecution had in its possession, there was only one choice left plea insanity. Butch did not want his sanity questioned and he threatened to strangle Siegfried. With little recourse and after spending more than $40,000 on attorneys, Michael Brigante Sr. told his grandson, sweetheart, your dime is played out. This meant that Butch would have to use a court-appointed attorney. In July of 75, William Weber from the firm of Frederick Mars and Bernard Burton was assigned by the clerk of Suffolk County Court to represent Butch in his trial. 
On July 29, 1975, Judge Ernest Signorelli, who was at the time presiding over the DeFeo trial, had a conference between Butch, prosecuting attorney Gerald Sullivan, and William Weber. The major concern was that there were no objections to Weber's playing an active role in Judge Signorelli's campaign to be elected to the surrogate court. After everyone agreed Weber's role in Judge Signorelli's campaign did not pose a problem, the matter of an insanity defense came up. Weber was hoping Signorelli would grant the defense motion to obtain copies of all police reports and crime scene photographs that the prosecution had. A month later in August, Judge Signorelli issued a ruling on Weber's supplemental omnibus motion granting the defense copies of the reports and photographs in the, in the possession of the prosecution. Since Weber did not receive the documents until the end of August, he had little time to use them in preparation for the trial that was set to begin in September. On September 15th, the defense was also struck a devastating blow when Judge Signorelli announced in the hearing, I deem it advisable to disqualify myself from the case, and I'm going to ask the administrative judge to reassign the case. In his book entitled High Hopes, Sullivan openly admitted that he had an active role behind Judge Signorelli's dismissing himself. Sullivan added, I had not finished maneuvering. I was about to engage in a time-honored strategy that defense lawyers and prosecutors have honed into an art form. Some call it judge shopping. Sullivan helped pressure Judge Signorelli from the case in order to get the judge he wanted. His wish came true because the DeFeo case was rescheduled to begin Monday, September 22nd at 9.30 with Justice Thomas Stark, who is Sullivan's choice, presiding over it. Thank you for listening.